So I'm here with a uh, composer Miriam Cutler for a brand new All Access. Uh, Miriam, thank you so much for for joining me today. Oh, I'm looking forward to it a lot. Yeah. So we've talked uh, in the past a couple times, but it's been a while. So I, I'd like to, you know, maybe just kind of start for anybody who are, is discovering you for the first time, or maybe to know a little bit about your background. I'm just kind of curious if you could just tell the story of how music uh, found you, or how you found music. <laughs> <laughs> what was that time like uh, early on, and when do you when do you remember that spark of like interest going from hobby and then of course and then oh. of course and then of course when did it become like okay this is going to be my career now you know <laughs> <laughs> that was really a long time coming um well you know i come from a very musical family my mother sang in nightclubs you know when she was young my father played the guitar you know when he was a kid my uncle played the sax and sometimes our and my grandmother from what i've been told played in the nickelodeons uh, piano. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so um, music was always a part of our family, but it was never taken seriously as a uh, profession or anything like that. And in fact, my brother was a really good trumpet player, jazz trumpet player. He's a lot older than me. And I kind of grew up, you know, his band would come over and rehearse and I would sit under the piano and just listen to them play like really great Ramsey Lewis stuff. And so I, I really, you know, always loved it. But Oh my God, my parents made sure that he did not become a professional musician. It was really looking like that was going to happen. And so my father, you know, it was during the Vietnam War and my father took him by the ear, afraid he was going to get drafted and took him down to join the Navy and become an officer. So that really changed his whole trajectory. And I saw how much they disapproved of what he was doing. So it never, you know, it was something I did privately, really. Wow. I was, you know, I was the kind of kid that spent a lot of time by myself and in my room and I would, you know, play my, you know, I, I loved any music instruments. I mean, I would play anything. And, yeah. and, you know, that's why I always tell people, if your kid shows an interest in musical instruments, you know, if I was told, oh, learn the one you're on and don't mess around with others, you know, take it seriously and practice. I, I would never do that with a kid because when they have that interest when they're young, it doesn't matter how good they get on an instrument but being exposed to it is so wonderful. And of course, becoming a composer, all the years I fooled around on other instruments and played in different kinds of bands and stuff, it, it all just fed really beautifully into this, you know, yeah. I, I had a lot of exposure to music. And so um, um, anyway, you know, it, it, it got to the point where, you know, in, in high school, I, I never played in front of anybody. And then I started writing songs on guitar because Joni Mitchell and Lauren Miro and all that. And so um, when I got to college, I, I actually was also a folk dancer and I played clarinet. And so because of that, I was, um, I played in these ethnic bands, you know, for folk dancing. And I got really exposed, you know, I learned to play in really strange meters and Yugoslavian music and um, Balkan music and Greek music and things like that. So, you know, I just had a real love of music, but I didn't, I was very shy. And didn't like performing so didn't it seemed you know when i went to college um i thought well i'll major in music just to see you know because it's something i just naturally love and i'm good at and i took one theory class and i hated it so much in the <laughs> schoenberg school of music at ucla <laughs> i hated it so much that i um immediately changed my major to anthropology and never took another music class except for ethnomusicology oh, wow i took a bunch of those ucla had great department and, uh, and so I studied anthropology and I was really fascinated by music from around the world. So I got into that, you know, and I really, you know, I still was very shy, didn't like performing, but I played at least in some of these ethnic groups. And then um, after college, I, you know, I was really serious in college. I was very activist and all that. So I was kind of becoming very aware of the world around me and feminism and, mm -hmm. and social justice stuff. And I actually left grad school to go work as a um, social justice researcher. <laughs> and I worked for these um, incredible lawyers, you know, uh, that were just bringing the most amazing, it was a very creative couple guys who were finding ways to make big changes in the system um, without, by using lawsuits and doing investigative uh, journalism and stuff like that so I loved it but at the same time these friends of mine from the women's building of all things wanted to start a ragtime band and I thought well I play clarinet it's perfect you know so we just yeah. started messing around and, and we used to rehearse at the women's building and I started you know I always wrote songs 
but they were really just my own songs for me. I didn't want to perform or anything. Right. And, uh, and, but we started performing and we got invited to play at this art opening. It was called You Art What You Eat. <laughs> and it was at the Women's Building um, Art Gallery. And it was like, we were basically, four of, the, four of us were, like three or four of them were in a theater company, the Odyssey Theater Company. And then there was me and a couple others that were more music, more musicians. And so we, we started playing ragtime music. I started writing arrangements for the band of Scott Joplin. And um, it was really like, people loved us. We, we went and bought these used dresses, you know, like, uh, you know, Victorian dresses. That's awesome. Yeah, we started performing. The first gig we had, we got paid a gallon of wine. And, you know, if anybody tells you that uh, feminists don't have a sense of humor, they're just completely out of their minds because it was hilarious. You know, we, people absolutely loved us. I think we knew two songs and they made us play all night. And we just kept playing them over and over and we were getting drunk off our hands, you know, and, and yeah. uh, I was still very shy, you know, so um, I was in the background. We had a, a we had someone like a, an actress that was teaching them how to turkey trot. And, you know, we really were having a lot of fun. And so when she left the band, I became the front person because I'm a singer. And so I started singing these songs and I wrote a lot of really like satire and stuff like that. We got really popular and started performing regularly. And wow. during that time, we were getting booked doing college concerts and stuff because the women's movement was really, you know, it, it was heavy in the colleges and we went all over. And so we made a couple records. We were one of the first groups in the whole country that made our own independent record. And in those days, you know, you had to go to a studio and, and you know, you had to, we made, uh, first we made a, what was it? Not a 33. I forget what, it was an EP. We made an EP with four okay. songs. Two of yeah. them were my songs and, and two of them were Scott Joplin songs. Anyway, we started selling t-shirts and, you know, all of a sudden, my God, I'm a performer, but I'm still working full time in this other thing, you know, that I just loved. Then one night I got scouted by Danny Elfman's band. And uh, that was when he was starting. His brother had the Mystic Nights of the Oingo Boingo. And right. Danny Danny had just come back from his world travels and he wanted to take over the band and turn it into a real musical band. It was a street theater before. Have I already told you all this? Or, no, I don't remember it. If you did, I don't oh, remember. Okay. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, so but I mean, I have a, yeah, I have like a completely, I think now in those days, there was no set path to becoming a film composer. So it's not yeah, like yeah. today where people go, I'm going to major in college, you know, and I'm going to, you know, there right. weren't classes and things like that. I mean, literally I tripped over it, you know, yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. performing in that band and then I got recruited by the Mystic Knights and I became, you know, and so now here I am in two bands. And we also had another band that I played in, which Danny put together. We just played a lot of old jazz. It was so much fun. It was like real 30s New Orleans jazz. And wow. uh, this guy named Brad Kay used to do all the arrangements. So I basically, you know, I came from being a guitar girl, playing and writing songs, you know, and playing my clarinet and ethnic groups to being in these bands that first I learned about ragtime music. I didn't know about that. Yeah. And it was like, I really learned about jazz starting with ragtime by playing it and then when I was in the Mystic Nights we, we went further and played a lot more of jazz and we even had some free jazz in there with Sam Phipps on sax you know so I learned all about jazz at that period in my life and um, I always had an inclination towards it but I I didn't realize how much I loved it and I stopped yeah. being involved in my age group culture and just was in this jazz bow world you know with the boingo and and uh, then I was booking a jazz club, uh, Vine Street Barn Grill. I did that for eight years. It was just all grew out of, you know, um, the experience of being in that music. And so years later, so, so years later, you know, um, the way I got into, I got, so when I left my, my women's band, we had it for seven years and we, it was just super popular and really, really fun. But then the Boinko was kind of, on my case they wanted me to be more available and this was right. um late 70s and they were starting Dan danny we had this two-hour stage show that was fantastic uh, very challenging and super wild and crazy like an old jazz cartoon <laughs> and um oh my god it was just like other you know danny's pretty crazy and um like a fox <laughs> <laughs> and um you know so i got really kind of went more known because of those two bands and it was really so strange because I was the only woman in the Boingo and I was in an all woman band that was a real feminist band. 
you know, and it was kind of um, my desire to do exciting, fun entertainment um, was kind of trumping my values. And it kind of, they became kind of a clash because Danny's view of women was a little bit <laughs> more limited. And yeah. um, eventually I left and, um, you know, I didn't really want to play that role, but I sure loved it. And uh, after that, I had my own band and did my own songs and stuff, but couldn't really, you know, I, I had made a decision. I left my other job and I made a decision. I just had to do music all the time. I think that's what happens to, to people. Like you get to this point where you're like, I can't, I don't want to do anything else. I want to stay home and just do music. And right. I don't care what I have to do to do it. And so I, I started uh, trying to write pop songs, you know, to make some money. And I had, so I had a little studio at home and, and also my whole career follows the trajectory of the technology. Because when mm. I started, there was no synths, there were no computers. It was all like you get a reel-to-reel -reel machine and then you yeah. do it to picture, you use this the Newton book to get your timings, you know. This is the way it was done in those days. Yeah. Which for someone who hates math, I found myself, why am I, I doing this? You know? Because <laughs> you know, to try to do all the, the time code uh, calculations without a computer is oh really God. just well it's pretty awful can't imagine i mean that's so people <laughs> yeah. ask me like oh why'd you go into film it's like because i don't like math <laughs> like no but right you know other I, reasons but that was a big part of it i couldn't stand academia and i could yeah. i mean i loved learning and i love but i don't have an academic kind of mind i'm not analytical you know and and so um the creative kind of took over but so when i first started you know it happened someone came up to me at a gig and they wanted me to score something and i I think at the time I may have just gotten my first synthesizer and I, you know, and, and you have to realize that, that you guys can't even imagine what it's like with no computers and stuff. When, yeah. when the, the first, the first computer I had was a Commodore and it had eight tracks. And I remember being like, wow, eight <laughs> tracks. <laughs> and, um, and the only way you could synchronize was by laying down this tone called an FSK. And then you had to use the tape deck to drive the, Wow. Compu this computer, you know, and then, you know, and then little by little, the little Macintosh desk thing came yeah, yeah. out. It had like five megabytes of memory. And <laughs> um, we were just all going crazy, like, oh my God. And then, you know, all these synths started happening. And then when the Yamaha DX7 came out, it was really like, oh God, this is unbelievable. And it <laughs> made a stir in the musicians' union. You know, they wanted to, Michael Boddicker was overdubbing and not charging. And they were having, they had this big meeting, like, how can we stop this? How can we stop people from overdubbing and not charging and using these instruments, you know, instead of strings? I yeah. mean, that's, a, you know, it was really kind of a crazy Wild West kind of a time. So then what happened was, um, so little by little, people would approach me and I went, you know, one day, I'll never forget the first time I put my hands down on the keyboard with the video player playing. And I just went, and I went, oh, oh my God. <laughs> you know, and it was like, I have to, oh my God, how am I going to do this? This is like, how can I make this happen? And so I didn't even know what it was. I don't think I even called myself a film composer for the first 15 years. Because it didn't, <laughs> like, Bernard Herrmann's a film composer. You right. Know, uh, you know, the people I grew up listening to, you know, Rota, you know, and and um, just, it's just, you know, it's it's so different than it is now. It, yeah. it wasn't even something that a normal person thought about. Like, how, who would think about being a film composer, you know? So um, anyway uh had my little studio for for song demos and i really got interested in recording i liked having you know this was nobody had home studios and so i went from having a little four track cassette that i could overdub on and then i and and um and i did these elaborate demos with like overdubs like i i remember doing songs you know that had a horn section and a drummer and like backup vocals and lead vocals on a four track cassette you know, wow. <laughs> so I was constantly like bouncing. And so that's how I learned how to record. And um, I was never very technical, but I, I think in those days, it was like the, the drive, I've, I've seen it in other people, something that I'm not good at, which is techni technology. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, you just go for it full on because it takes you to this place where you can do your own work. You can work at home. You don't have to hire musicians all the time. You, you don't have to hire studios you know you can have safety of your home and develop your ideas and then present them to people so it made a huge difference being able 
to have, I, I mean, my friends, when I first built my home studio, they were, they thought I was nuts. I mean, you know, big Hollywood producers have their own studios at home, you know, and yeah, not yeah. me, you know, and so then Fostex came out with the first really great semi-pro multi-track, you know, recording system with synchronization. I'll never forget when I saw that I could buy a synchronizer for $1,200 instead of 6,000. Yeah. And it was like, wow, <laughs> this is like, okay. You know, so I had my two track mastering machine and my 16 track machine and a big console. And I took out a loan because in those days, the musicians union, you could get a loan. Like yeah. if you were not established. I mean, that was one of the real advantages of being in the union. I mean, I took out this loan, I bought this console and, and voila, I had a studio and, <laughs> and my friends were like, you're out of your mind, you know, why are you doing that? But I mean, what it allowed me to do was take jobs that paid very little and yeah. still make money, you know, and in right. be self-sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. I was very self-sufficient and I learned, and I always had way more ideas, you know, it was always frustrating when, before I had a studio because I always had so many ideas, but I couldn't try them out without yeah. spending a lot of money to hire musicians and stuff and so um once i had this kind of gear i was able to actualize my ideas to communicate them to others so then i now right. i'm in a situation where i can show a, a filmmaker what i'm going to do you know that was the beginning of mock-ups and um you know some people had synclaviers that was a big jump you know mm -hmm. i had two friends that had synclaviers those were like half a million dollars you know no, I had like a $12,000 studio, you know, right, right. <laughs> I, I always managed to do all this stuff with nothing. you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that I, I always admire the people who, yeah, who can make things, you know, without the support of, you know, I mean, one of my favorite filmmakers, of course, Robert Rodriguez, he, you know, he started yeah. really doing cheap stuff and just shooting with his friends and selling his body to science to fund his stuff, you know, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's just like stuff like that, you know, but uh, I'm, I'm curious, though, because I mean, if talking about your early life how you're really invested in social justice and issues like that so it makes sense that now your career really is focused in documentaries and oh, really yeah. important subjects so, but you know you started off doing kind of these kind of b movies that kind of moving through oh so god yes <laughs> so i'm curious talking <laughs> I about like how, z movies <laughs> z. so talk about those early days and how did you finally find your footing going from doing those kind of movies and then like okay was it like a, a long road to finally get to like okay i'm going to start doing documentaries because I oh, yeah. if anybody looks it at your imdb it's like road. oh here's a documentary here's a documentary and then here's four more and then five more and, and then, then there's like all documents and then it's like you, it seems like you found your calling so i'm just curious what oh, was like what was it yeah. like finding your calling and to, to get to that point this is the really uh, most important part i think for artistic people is to understand that they have a right to love what they're doing yeah and to feel good about it you know um, so, I mean, I, I've always been a real self-starter. Like I've always been someone who started my own bands, did my own music. I've never done pop music ever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, always kind of fringy, but I just, uh, there's a kind of person that you can recognize. They're the person that's the, the front person in the band. They're the person who is the top, the lead composer. Like I, I kind of knew early on, I didn't have the skill set to be, to work for somebody. I, I really, um, what I learned, you know, I, I did a lot of different things before I settled on music. You know, I worked um, at a singing telegram company because basically I couldn't make a living in music. I was really popular. I got a lot of good reviews, but I couldn't make a living and it was really just destroying my self-esteem. And so I decided that music was trying to kill me and that I was going to stop. And I'm yeah. just going to stop doing it. And so I did. And I got a job. Where did I get a job? At a singing telegram company. Um, a friend of mine was a juggler. I've also been into circus all the time. And a friend of mine was and street performing and all that. And so a yeah. friend of mine was a juggler and she was working at the singing telegram. She goes, you should get a job at the singing telegram company. So I go there and I get put at a desk and I'm sitting in a room with a bunch of people and I'm selling singing telegrams over the phone. So I'm singing all these songs. And, and what happened was it, it was typical of everything I do. I'm sitting there and this, I didn't really think the songs were very good. So I started making up my own 
And, <laughs> and then I like I'd be sitting there and it's somebody's birthday and, and I'd, I'd tell them what was, you know, you had the menu of things to sell. And um, I just started going, well, what's he into? You know, oh, oh, he likes this and that. Oh, well, we could have like Tarzan and the Eight Band, you know. And I had all these yeah. crazy friends, you know, like the Roto-Rooter Good Time Christmas Band. They were like a brass band that ran around like maniacs, kind of like the Boingo Street Theater, but a little sweeter <laughs> and um, less edgy. But anyway, so I started making up these acts and making it. And then pretty soon I'm writing songs. And so one day the boss of the company came and I'd be, you know, instead of selling a $75, you know, singing telegram, I'm selling like a $300, $400 package. Yeah. So the, one day the owner came back and, you know, checked me out and he asked me what I was doing and they had a talk with me. And, and so he really encouraged me. He liked where I was going with it and he really encouraged me. And so I just kept making up more and more stuff. And pretty soon he gave me my own division. And I was like, you know, we started working with advertising companies. And this was where I actually learned that my ideas had value, wow. that I could actually make money. I, that was the yeah. first time I made money from my ideas. And I started producing like these production numbers to, to, for product promotions and things like that. Yeah. We did a, um, we did a um, I never forget, I did the Wizard of Oz for Pioneer Chicken. It was like a training, a training event. And I wrote wow. all these, I took the songs and I wrote them all about becoming a manager. And I had the Roto-Rooter Christmas band play the music. <laughs> and I found people who had their own costumes. There, there's this gay guy that does the Wicked Witch and he had all of his own makeup. And so I wrote a script and he just, it was so much fun. And I played clarinet in the band. And so I got to be there and do that. And so um, we, it was just like, I just, started doing a lot of that kind of stuff you know wow. and, and I mean it really started um taking off and he gave me this division with this other woman that I was doing it with and um you know it's it sort of um it, all of a sudden I'm wearing silk suits you know like I'm going and buying business suits because I'm having me business meetings you know yeah, yeah. and I'm like wait what <laughs> so I got pretty far into that and I realized that I the direction I was going and I was actually making money and people respected me and thought I was great, but I was like, why am I, am I, do I really want to be in advertising? You know, is that right. really what I want to do? Yeah. Um, I had to always stop myself from it because, you know, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you ought to do it. You have to find what really, you know, and so I was getting further away from the kind of um, values-based life I had really been looking for. And um, I always ended up having to leave these things that I had developed because, uh, wait a minute, I'm on the wrong road. You know, this isn't me. Yeah, yeah. So then I was, so then I kind of got more and more into this composing thing. And it turned out a friend of mine that I met taking music, I went back to school at, at Santa Monica CC after I graduated UCLA while I was in the Boingo because I, I was ready to learn more about music. I was more interested in it so I went back and I took some theory and I was much more into it than I was when I was young so uh, I met this guy there really great keyboard player and um he also was making these really horrible low-budget movies and it's like and so um he wanted me to score them and so I started scoring those that's how I really got into it I mean I did one-offs here and there yeah and yeah. then I did like I started doing working for this company and they loved me and because uh, I just was so into it and I was delivering <laughs> these massive scores, like horror movie scores, you know, 80 minutes of music, you know. Yeah, you're doing and, these these really kind of grungy, slashy slasher movies. <laughs> they weren't even they weren't even that. They were yeah. so bad. They were kind of they weren't scary. They weren't sexy. They just, just like, like dead like hookers, these, you know, like <laughs> dead, oh, it wasn't even like it was more like witchcraft. You know, yeah, witchcraft and movies. It was, you did those, those witchcraft movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did like a bunch of them. And, and they basically, they would make a one sheet. And the way they would do these movies is, um, and this was when the American film market was kind of scuzzy. You know, yeah. they'd, they'd take Billy D. Williams, who was on the skids, and they right. put him in a B and they put him in a movie and the splashes, they make a pretty picture with a science fiction looking thing or a witchcraft. Yeah. And then they take it to the American film market or other places and they sell the territories. Then they make the film and it, and it's for non-English speaking people. So it doesn't matter how stupid it is. Right. And so they make these films. And so this was my film school because basically I learned everything about, about um, syncing the picture and all of that from the mixer. 
you know, he taught yeah. me how to do it. I had no idea. And so I started scoring these and they loved me because I would just turn in these massive things. And, um, and I did about 10 or 15 films really close together. So I was like, really, at that point, all I cared about was learning how to write. I just was trying ideas and orchestration yeah. things. And, you know, I'd have enough money for one musician you know, and I didn't have enough time to do charts. And so it was just, okay, bad guy chord D minor, yeah. <laughs> power chord. Okay, one, two, three, four, ah, you know? And so it was really, it was, I mean, all the crazy stuff is the stuff I did. And so I went really far with that. And I started getting, another friend of mine was doing industrials and he had, he was overbooked. And so he got me this, these gigs with Mattel and Honda, Honda not Honda, Toyota you know, in infinity. And we did yeah. music for these car shows. <laughs> and, was, and so I wake up 10 years later, I'm solvent. I have a nice little studio. I'm yeah. solvent. I'm working all the time. I'm at, I'm at a good beginning stage of being a composer. And I, and I didn't have one thing that I would show somebody that I did, mm -hmm. except I was wrote for a circus at that point. And I was right. the, compo the composer for that for like 18 years. <laughs> but um, so you know, I, I kind of got depressed and I just went, I, I this is like, if this is going to be my life, what am I even doing? Why did I go to college? You know, I'm really smart. Yeah. Why should I, why should, what am I doing with my life? And really, literally, right around that time, 1997 is exactly the day, you know, the date. Um, I met, I was at a screening of one of my kind of low budget documentaries, but I wasn't really that into docs yet. You know, I didn't really work on anything great. And um, this guy, I met him at the at the thing and and at the screening, and we were talking, and he started telling me about this film he was making, and it was just because I had even done in, in college, I worked on um, rights of prisoners, you know, and all kinds of really sophisticated uh, legal. I did a lot of legal research for for these big lawsuits, and yeah, um, and so I was really far away from. It was kind of like I have this wacky street theater kind of part of me that will do anything for a laugh. And then yeah, this yeah. other part of me that's just deadly serious. And so I never was able to put any of it together. It was always totally separate. Like there's that crazy girl playing in a gorilla suit, you know? And then she's like going down to do legal research to about violation of, you know, constitutional rights by pretrial detainees, you know? Yeah. And so and I couldn't put it together. And I, and I was, you know, I probably, if, if not for a few little interesting twists and turns, I might've gone to law school and become a public interest lawyer or a journalist, something like that. You know, I was actually heading more towards journalism, but um, it was just, all, these things happened and there was this other part of me that needed to be expressed. So I usually did it on the side, but once it took over, yeah. you know, there was no turning back, you know? So, um, I, I mean, I remember very much these turning points one day when I was sitting at the piano with a friend of mine and I didn't want to go to work because I wanted to stay and keep working on the song, you know? Yeah. And, and then another really pivotal time was when um, I met Arthur and he told me about this film he was doing. It was called License to Kill. And it was about um, these serial killers, men who, who murder gay men. And he was really doing this incredible research. He was going into prisons and he was just interviewing them and letting them discuss why they felt that they should and had the right to murder people, especially just gay men. And he's a gay man and he had been gay bashed and he was really fascinated with this issue. Like, what is it that makes them yeah. take it all the way to murder? And he was so intelligent in his discussion about it. And, you know, we really hit it off and I was just drooling. I was just like, Oh my God, I want to work on that. And he yeah. lived in San Francisco. So, um, he said, hey, you know, if you're ever in San Francisco, come and look me up, you know, because we liked each other. And um, and so, I mean, not long after, I don't remember exactly what, what happened, but I decided I'm going to go up there and see him. So I went up to San Francisco. I have cousins there. So I went and visited them and I and I called him up and said, hey, I happen to be driving through San Francisco. <laughs> and I went and saw him and we spent an afternoon together talking about his film. And I realized that I really was invested in the story and I actually gave him some ideas, you know, and, and we really hit it off and, and he had like a thousand dollars, you know? Yeah. And so it was just like, I was longing to do something meaningful for myself. So I think when I met him, 
I recognized it. And this is something I tell young people a lot. You know, I never know exactly what I'm looking for, but I can feel it when I'm close. Yeah, just your you instinct, know? your gut feeling. It's, yeah. a, it's like, this is, this is something I need. This is, I got to check this out. This is, yeah. you know, ah, you know. <laughs> and so uh, I get all, you know. And um, so, yeah, when I had that, you know, he hired me, we did it. Very little music. Film went to Sundance and he took me and you know, we had a very small crew. Uh, and we, we just three of us went up there and he took us and we went to all the screenings. And I mean, it was a complete hit. It got two awards at Sundance. And I, wow. but most importantly, I was introduced to this global community of people who cared about the same stuff I do. And um, they were from all over the world and super smart and really dedicated, passionate. Art. They're like really art artists, really. You know, the, in the way they approach their work, they care so deeply, which is the way I am. Total commitment. Um, and when you meet other people that are the same, it's just the re it was like I knew exactly what I wanted to do the rest of my life. It was wow. like I'm going to become part of that community. I want to be with them. I want to do the stuff they're doing. I want to, you know, support their work. And I want to, this is what I want. And so once I understood that, I just was able to make, you know, really be very intentional. Every choice I made now had a context, like, why am I doing this? Right. Ah, I know, so I can meet that filmmaker, so I can do something that I really care about. So I don't care about the money. I want to just work on this stuff. And so over the years, that's what I've done. And, you know, just like every other young composer, I was really, I wanted to be the, the one, the one, the woman that made it in Hollywood. Yeah, Because yeah. I love movies. I love Hollywood. I love entertainment. I totally love being entertained and I love entertaining people, but there's another part of me that really had to be fed. And this is really important for artistic people, because if you don't feed that part of you, feed your soul, then you really, no matter how much money or whatever you get glory and whatever, you're not going to ever be happy. Yeah. So at least for me, for people who are very artistically driven, um, like I really care about everything I do and I don't want to spend one minute doing something I don't care about. You know, after those 10 years, I was done with that. You know, yeah. why am I doing this? This is Absolutely. not me, you know. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's super. And I think it makes the world a better place if more people are happy doing what they're doing, you know. And, and as I've become a mentor and stuff over the years, it really resonates with younger people. Like, and, and even with us, like, we only had one model to look at. It was the Hollywood kind of model. We weren't aware sure. of what was yeah. going on in Europe and stuff. Um, and so, you know, but I've been sort of really touting the concept that you have choices you can make your career about who you are and what you care about you don't have to be try to recreate someone else's career you know because uh, like i could you know i'll never be john williams i don't have that kind of background i don't approach music that way exactly, you know yeah. but then but then what i do has value and it took me a long time to even say i'm a composer um because i didn't really value it you know i didn't see my contribution now i can see by investing myself in it, that it, it has much more value to the world and to me I, by Absolutely. investing myself in it. This is me and this is what I care about. And this is how I would do it, you know? And yeah. I could be just as fun and goofy as anybody, but, um, but I really, you know, I, I do have a great, I, I love comedy and I did a lot of comedy, but I don't get to do much anymore. Although I am working on a couple of things that are lively and fun now, right now. So. Oh, that's awesome. You know. Yeah. That's I mean, a, I've, I've always, go ahead. I know. Sorry. I'm just, I'm just curious because uh, you're talking about, you know, finding your voice and finding kind of, yeah, getting, becoming fulfilled. And, but now you're working on, I mean, Oscar nominated docs like RBG and now you have Gabby Giffords won't back down. Um, these big subjects with kind of big uh, influential people and figures. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, you talk about, you know, I really relate to what you talk about, talking about growing up shy and kind of reserved. I'm, I was very much the same way. I went through a period of depression in middle school, trying to find, yeah, me you, too. Know, <laughs> you know, just trying to find your place and your fitting. Yeah. And I, was bullied, I was bullied as a child too. So it was just like, oh, so I'm man. curious, I'm curious now as you've kind of found a little bit more confidence and you've, you've, you're working in the, in the field and doing subjects you love that you're pursuing. Do you ever have to battle self-doubt anymore like if you're about to tack <laughs> if you if you're bad if you're about to take an rbg documentary or you know oh. you're like I, I can't do this how am i supposed to do this person justice or this subject justice do you have how, how often and how do you battle that if you're still oh there's always that? i'm so fear motivated i'm 
I'm deadly afraid of failure. I'm afraid of missing mm. the deadline. Of course, I've never failed and I've never missed a deadline. Yeah. And so now I have more confidence, but there's always that fear, you know, like right now I'm going through a thing because I'm aging, you know, I'm older. And I, I mean, this lifestyle is really for not for I'm 70, you know, uh, and I've been I'm still living the same way I lived when I was 40 <laughs> and like not, you know, working all the time and, you know, yeah. being on deadlines and, and uh, trying to squeeze everything in. And and so I think, um, yeah, so I think having doubt is good you know i mean pretty much every day i wake up and go am i doing what i should be doing this is what right. i really want to be doing now i have maybe 10 or 15 years of health ahead if i'm lucky you know a lot of people i know are sick and dying and and uh it's like do i do i really want to be chained to my chair for the last 10 years you know right. so i'm trying yeah, to yeah. i'm doing a lot more traveling i'm doing a lot more teaching and presenting and um and you know it's really important to to, I, I, and because I have to, I have to be into what I'm doing because I'm a thousand percent and I can't do a thousand percent on something I don't believe in. Absolutely, so, yeah. so I want to be operating at my, at my strengths, you know? And um, so, yeah, there's always fear. There's yeah. always fear. And now there's, because it's really been interesting uh, all, all my career, I was waiting for this definitive moment when I would know that I was doing the right thing, you know, like I'm, I'm doing, okay, I'm 10 years in, I realized I had to change. I changed. Okay, now I'm happier. Um, you know, am I still happy? And every day I get up and go, hmm, okay, I'm miserable today. But it's okay because I, I mean, anybody would be miserable with the hours I've been working and stuff. But I <laughs> yeah. still, at least I care about what I'm doing. And I know at the end, I'll be really glad I did it. And, yeah. and I love being challenged. You know, I don't want to work on things that aren't challenging and on every level. And uh, so with that, it's an adventure and you're always afraid. Even if I'm going on a trip, I'm always a little bit afraid because there are yeah. a lot of bad things that can happen, but um, it's just, it, it can't, it can't stop you, you know? And uh, the fear of failure has been a big one for me, but it just, uh, the minute I get a, a gig, I go into that mode of, oh my God, I only have seven months to do it, you know? And then time <laughs> starts passing because of course it docks, you know, you have seven months to do it and they don't even get you a cut until it's three months away, you know? So anything yeah. can happen in docs. It's really not for the meek. It's so changing constantly and you have to just meet it where it is and you can't complain because that's the nature of the beast. And that's part of the excitement, but it's also kind of nerve wracking, you know? Yeah, it's completely, I mean, yeah, you're, the documentary really is just about gathering as much footage as you can. And then it just kind of comes together as an edit towards the end. Oh, so it sure... doesn't come together. They have I mean, to work it. They have to, they have work, to work it work. and they go, oh shit, we don't have the movie we thought we had. We have to have right. a different movie now because it's a different, we shot, it didn't turn out that way, you know? Exactly. You go out with like, oh, we're going to get this interview or this shot. And then it's like, oh, completely different footage. It changes the thing or even find out new oh. information that pushes, you know, yeah. Because it's an investigation. Yeah, it's an investigation as much as it is as a storytelling or filmmaking and trying to, you know. So I'm you have, uh, have to embrace yeah. the you have to embrace the process. You Absolutely. and I do. It's it's like a lot of people don't realize, you know, they do these things that are, you know, let's say they're doing a TV series that goes on for seven years. Well, yeah, yeah there's a lot of deadline involved in that. But after the first year, you're really kind of okay, you know, yeah. a few new cues, you know, but yeah. you have your library and stuff. With a documentary, every day is a new day and a new movie sometimes, you know, like I've even done all the way to Sundance and they changed it again after Sundance and then they changed <laughs> yeah. it again for the theatrical release. And then they, wow. you know, it's, it's like, um, it, you have to have really be flexible and, and just, um, have a positive attitude. I mean, I've seen other composers, they go, what do you mean you do more than four versions? <laughs> Are you kidding? I'd probably do 25 versions, you know, if I'm lucky, you know, between yeah. changes in the cut and everything, you gotta just be, and that's part of why I like it. Cause the filmmakers are like that, you know, they're yeah. like, oh shit, I shot this thing. And now I gotta, okay, I gotta it's a different go breed out and of shoot filmmakers. this whole other. Yeah. Yes, it's just like, it's like wanting life to be scripted and it can't be. And that's what I really love about it too. It's very exciting and it's challenging in a way that has actually taught me. Uh, it's so interesting because music has always been kind of what teaches me how to live, you know, mm -hmm. it's sort of because it's yeah. the one thing I've cared enough about to, to really suffer a lot and go for things that are hard. And, and one of the things I learned, you know, very young was that um, improvising when you're playing with musicians 
And um, I've always been, I used to love to have jams, jam sessions, and I would go to a lot of jam sessions. And that's how I kind of got known as a musician when I was young. And, um, you know, and especially being a girl and walking in with a horn, that's always, you know, you know. And, uh, and so it was just like, you know, I just realized if the only thing I ever have to worry about is being the most me I can be, myself, be myself, not try to be something I think they want. If I'm myself, then I can, I can jam on things. I can improvise and just go with the moment and be what I need to be at that moment, you know? And, and from playing in situations where you have to, it's like sports and stuff, you have to get in the zone. And if you, you have to learn how to get yourself in the zone, even when it's not conducive. And yeah, it's a mental that, game. I mean, it's a mental game as well. Yeah. It's mostly like a letting go. It's just a letting go of trying to control anything. Yeah. And so the music comes and the words come like I have bad memory and I'm always, you know, I used to worry when I spoke publicly, oh my God, what am I going to do? Or when I'm teaching, what I realize, realize is all I have to do is be myself. Oh, I forgot that word. Oh, but let me tell you about this story. You know what I mean? Yeah. I have a life full of experiences that I can share. And um, so improvising in life and in music is a strength. And uh, because of that, I'm not afraid, okay, a TV interview, okay, you know, I'm just going to be myself. I can't tw get tweaked about it. Right. You know, I can't try yeah. to be perfect. All I can be is me. And that's been such a saving grace, you know. I, anyway, so I was waiting for this definitive moment, like, People in my family couldn't understand what I was doing at all, but they never could anyway. <laughs> so, um, so you know, I, I, I realized after about being in this for like maybe 15 or 20 years, I realized, I looked around and I went, oh my God. So I think I arrived and I didn't notice because I'm, I never look for work. I'm always offered more things than I can take. Never, yeah. It's always been that way since I started. Um, I, I've always had enough money. I mean, I don't have a big, huge income or expensive lifestyle, but I've, I've never gone broke. I've gotten close to, to really losing it, but I've always been able to pull through by my wits, you know, and, um, and I've always had something to sell that people want. And so I guess it happened and, and I'm being invited to do all these really fun things now and travel and speak yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And so it's kind of like, I didn't even notice when it happened. You know, like like that guy Goran, you know, he gets picked, he's like plucked out of USC right into the big time. I mean, the amount of times that happens is so rare. Yeah. You know, it doesn't happen. Most of us, like most of us are working schmoes that are just kind of nose to the grindstone for year after year after year. And one day we notice, we look up and we go, oh, I'm in a different place. <laughs> even yeah. notice i've been on deadline for 14 years <laughs> i know i always have to remind myself to enjoy the moment you know because it's just oh, like you yeah. live it and then you just it goes by and then you're like oh shit that really won't just snap like that and then like four yeah, years yeah. go by two years go by or just even a project goes by or something a moment so it's just like yeah yeah it, I always those are the myself, moments that yeah. we we don't if we if we're not paying attention we miss them and we don't realize that i realized i was completely successful according to my criteria you know yeah yeah happy, no, I think at, you happy have. at work you know <laughs> <laughs> i mean and you know speaking of of you know, great filmmakers and your great storytellers that you work with you know you, you got to reunite with um your rbg directors you know betsy yeah. and, and julie for for this new uh, documentary gabby giffords won't back down and it's a really powerful story and i you know i remember it when it happened and and this and this documentary is so unique because it's not just about you know her fight for gun control and gun reform it's her personal recovery after her assassination attempt. And it, it looks into her life with her husband and, and it's, it's a personal thing, but it's also tackling the kind of big subject of, of gun control. And so I'm curious, talk to me about working on this particular documentary and reuniting with, you know, Betsy and Julie, and how did you approach it musically? How did you handle kind of those topics of the, you know, of the documentary crafting, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, hey, I'm just curious. Is, you know. They have a wonderful style of filmmaking. They, they really um, have managed to figure out how to make very inspiring films about very inspiring people and very yeah. difficult subjects. And um, they really, I think that that's what really resonates for me with them uh, is, is that I really appreciate the way, that, the, the way they choose to tell stories. And um, it's a little bit different than some other doc people, you know, but they cover really heavy stuff. Like this yes. is a very heavy film. It's very but heavy. Every moment it was, there was never a moment they weren't saying, this is inspiring. 
this is inspiring. This is not a bummer. This is inspiring. You know, this is what yeah. we want the takeaway to be because with Gabby Giffords, it's like she's such an amazing, inspiring person. And I yes. think it makes us all better to just be aware of what her story is and how she views her life. And I'm sure there's days she sits and just cries and is on, is oh. like, fuck this, fuck that, you know. How can but, you not? You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but she's she's just doing the most with what she has to work with and much more than most people could dream of doing. Yeah. So, um, and, and they also really like to use music in the film that isn't the score. You know, they like to use music that they, that these people listen to. Like, right. um, you know, like with RBG, you know, there was a lot of, of classical music and opera. And so it's an interesting, different, it's a different way of scoring in that I'm responsible for their personal story. Mm. But then there's, um, there's this whole other aspect that's going on where the music is playing a different role. It's helping us kind of really uh, know them better through their musical taste. And like with Gabby, you can see she's always singing. Um, she loved 80s rock, you know, yeah. it was not my favorite, you know. And <laughs> um, and so for, for the score, you know, just like with RBG, with RBG, it was like, this is a huge uh, story, but it's yes. an intimate story of one person too. And my job is to help support the emotional part of that story, that, that the emotional part of that personal story and to make her, to make her, to make us feel her more, you know, as a human and to find the things we relate to. And with um, Gabby, it was interesting because um, they wanted it to have the energy that she brings to everything, but they didn't want it to sound like the music she listens to, but it had to live in the same universe. Right. So yeah. I was kind of messing around with stuff and trying to figure out, um, you know, what, you know, I felt like, well, let's do something that sounds American, you know, guitar. I, I love acoustic guitars and I love strings and kind of lots of energy. So we had this kind of energetic stuff for her campaigning because it's just like positive and she's just so full, like seeing her before she was hurt she just was magnificent, a magnificent yeah. politician, a perfect specimen, and um, so incredibly likable and appealing, you know, and so I wanted the music to kind of be like appealing like her and energetic, but not necessarily have a specific style, if, uh, except maybe I was thinking Americana, because to me that's like patriotism. Yeah, It doesn't necessarily mean bluegrass, it can mean a lot of different things, Americana, but in this case, I felt it, it was sort of patriotic, like a real pure patriotic soul who loves her country and lives in the western part of it, where it's still a little bit the Wild West, you know, Yeah. and, um, and so she, you know, she rode horses and motorcycles and, you know, so it just felt, I don't know, it just felt right and they really liked it, so I kind of went with that, and then of course there's the whole other part, which is playing the violence and the destruction. And, um, you know, I've done so many films, you have to be really careful of how you calibrate the emotional tone because you don't want to wear the viewer out with, with, with awfulness, you know? Sure, yeah. Or small, you don't want to make something schmaltzy, which kind of makes it trite. And um, I always felt like for the, all that stuff, I wanted to create a feeling like you're holding your breath, like you're breathless mm. because you can't, it's so, it's so unfathomable that you're just like, you know, that feeling you get when it's like takes your breath away in a yeah. bad way. Like you just don't, or you're you know, just like frozen and you're just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, <sighs> so that's what I was kind of doing with that and trying to, to use a strong theme that would be something that would be recognizable, you know? Um, and I hope, you know, and, and so you never know also with the pacing and how often you use a cue because the film's constantly changing. And yeah. so I have these techniques that I teach of how you can kind of keep track of all that and make sure that the pacing, somebody's, nobody has time to keep watching it from the beginning. You know, you're all just trying to get through the cues and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, um, you know, I always, I have some ways I, I kind of try to keep track of things or bury them or, you know, but um, it takes, you know, it takes, uh, there, there's there's inspiration and then there's craft and and uh i was teaching in chicago at kubi's program last year this year this year and um you know teaching is a really fun way to understand how you do things <laughs> yeah. you have to figure out how to articulate about what you're doing 
Right. And like, so you have to put thought into it. And it also helps to talk to talking to filmmakers and trying to make them understand what you're talking about um, and expressing, you know, being able to really verbalize and manifest what your ideas are. And these are strengths that a composer needs to have. Um, so I've spent a lot of time, you know, I'm always trying to find the perfect word to describe it, you know, so that, you know, because you want to make sure that when you're discussing ideas with someone that you're talking about something that's the same, you know, instead yeah, of, yeah. you know, like the more specific you can be. And so it's, it's like a consciousness, a level of awareness that you bring to, to scoring things that, and I think that's what I love also about docs is it's so challenging. Um, for the first time I was teaching at, at, at Kubi's program and, um, you know, they, they learn to work on um, a lot of the programs really, uh, they seem to settle on tentpole movie scores and things like that, that aren't really subtle, you know, no, and, not so, at all. and so as the composers aren't learning how the nuances of, of musical emotional expression. Yeah. And, um, and so what I've, I've discovered when we were, I brought a film for them to work on that was about postpartum psychosis where a woman killed her three children. And um, it's so heavy. Starting light. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and, you know, heavy, and I yeah. said, Kubi, I, I think I'd like to teach this, this with this film this time. And, he, and I said, do you think it's too heavy? You know, and he said, no, no, this will be good for them. And yeah. sure enough, the first week I brought it in and, sh and they were looking, well, I sent it to them and they were looking at it and they wanted to do a therapy session from the beginning of like, they had to deal with their own feelings about the story you know so it, yeah it was a you're really reacting as an audience team. as a first. right yeah yeah and some of them were like I don't know if I can even do this I can't stand to watch it you know and uh and and so it was very it was a really uh wonderful experience for me and I think for them too because we really instead of talking about music we were like in it we were feeling it like no what you're writing isn't it's not going to cut it, you know, it's, it's, what are your reasons for this? You know, it, it made them have to think about things they don't normally think about, even when they're scoring other movies, because yeah. most movies, I mean, there's something about a documentary that's about a heavy subject, because it's so real, and it's a real person that it's happening to, and you, you know, you can't just go, oh, that's just a script somebody wrote. No, this is like, this happened, yeah. and so, yeah how do you deal with that musically how do you deal with your own feelings how do you how do you calibrate where you land emotionally for the audience you can't wear them out too soon you've got to make it you know so we have a lot of really in-depth discussions with filmmakers you know how you know how do you want to pace this you know in right. the beginning is it going to be really shocking and then we kind of you know, neutralize it a little bit as we're getting into the details, you know, how do you want to present it? And so we have to get very, very, it's, it's much more demanding artistically, you know, to, to work on stuff like that. And um, that's what I really love about it. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's uh, and so I felt like what I learned from teaching that class with that film was that that's what I love about scoring. And I want them to have that experience because I think many of them won't, won't really want to do that kind of work. You know, some of them will though, and they'll resonate with it. And, and it, that's where it gets into the art world. I think the realm of art, as opposed to just entertainment, Absolutely. where you can communicate yeah. something very difficult in a way that people accept it, you know, and, um, and they, they're with you. Like with Gabby is a perfect example of something that takes people to a place that's really, really awful. And yeah. because you first you you fall in love with her and you say, oh, my God, she would have been a great president. Yeah, she's such a great her. leader. Yeah. Yeah. And then you see what happened to her and it's almost too much to bear. I mean, I think it, you'd have to be made of stone to not get really affected by that. So now how do we want to handle that? And those are the kind of discussions, you know, that we have. And it's really interesting. I think. Absolutely. So I'm curious, like, what, you know, the, the documentary is constantly changing if they're out filming. They're, you said you're working kind of on the go, kind of running guns. Yeah. So I'm, when do you get involved with with music? Is it right? Do you, do you sit down at the start before they go out filming? Or do you, they pull you in once they have some footage to share? Is like, and then you start kind of find out what's your starting point? Like, where do you come in? <laughs> well, um, it's always different depending mm -hmm. on who they are. Sure. And how yeah. and how busy I am. I would start at the earliest time possible. I'll start mm -hmm. with an outline of the film. Okay. You know, if I have time to, because I want to spend time writing music 
and, and writing good music yeah. instead of having to rush and just go, oh, this is working. You know, I want to really write very conscious, you know, uh, intentional music and, and, and accept the full, the full power of the role I have in making the film. Yes, you know, because yeah. I can really, you know, one of the things I teach is how music changes meaning of footage. And even the smallest little nuance can completely change what people are going to get from that footage. 100%. I mean, the best thing is I always, it's a bigger example of this or more of it's like those trailers where they cut The Shining and make it a comedy, just, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's extreme. <laughs> yeah. But then what really blows the filmmakers' minds is that I could put on, 10 different cues randomly that all work which one is working in the right way right wow, that's yeah. what's challenging like i don't know i need them and we do it together it's a process yeah. so Depends i want to develop yeah. the yeah i want to develop the collaboration so that i have them to really be able to direct me and i, I want to give them my input and, and present possibilities they would never think of you know and they present some to me that i would never have thought of you know and so together we have three or four good minds working on it you know yeah. so i like to have time to do that and so i'll start whenever they have anything if i have the time and um and so sometimes i don't have time and i have to or or there's just they don't even have time to deal with me they're too busy you know so um i might just be writing some stuff I, i'll take any information that they can give me about the film you know mm -hmm. well what music are you thinking i mean what do you like what do you, is there something you got in your mind you know or or uh let me see a picture of people, you know, you have any stills, you have any, you have an outline, give me something, let me hear a voice, an interview, you know, to get a feel for what's going on. And then I just start throwing ideas, you know, I, I usually go through lots of ideas before I even send anything. So I'll only send an idea that I think is good. And, um, but if I have lots of different approaches, I might give them some choices. And then, you know, it may take them one or two weeks to get back to me, if they're yeah. busy shooting and stuff. So it can go on like, I mean, I just like to use whatever time there is as much as possible and without pushing it. Cause of course you can fin give me a finished film and I can do that too. But yeah. I, is there, I really are there do. any, are there any temp tracks in the doc world? Like is it a temp track? Oh yeah. Thing? Yeah. Oh, big time. Oh yeah. yeah. They even do test. They do test screenings now too. Oh, wow. um, yeah. It's all, you know, and I find sometimes that, you know, any information I get from them is really valid and will help me in my process. But Thing is i have to make sure and understand is that temp what is it about that temp music is it just a placeholder is it just the tempo is mm -hmm. it the sound of it is it doing something like it's hitting in a certain place what is it about it i have to get the facts you know like yeah. what is the information that will help me and so what any information is helpful so i, I mean temp tracks are fine with me as long as i understand wh what it is about it that they really like because it can really mislead you and yeah. waste a lot of time and I, i've the What's really been cool is over all these years, I've really developed ways of spending less time on rewrites and more time developing the themes together. So when I develop the themes together, then we spend a lot less time on rewrites where the rewrites are really simple. They're just like, oh, can you move that? Can you move that? And, you know, it's not like, oh, no, this is all wrong. See what I mean? So I'd rather, I, and I explain it to them right up front, you know, my process is to be very transparent my goal is to make us as productive as possible with our time so that we're not getting frustrated or going around in circles, you know, or wasting resources. And so, you know, I know how to get the information I need. And I, yeah. and I just say, just let me, you know, ask you the questions I have to ask. And I'm getting, I'm just getting information so I understand. And you don't have to give the, have answers for me. Just give me information and answer my questions. And that gives me something to work with, you know. So it's a really... I've really gotten sophisticated in my uh, process yeah. and I love including them. And some of them are really into it. Some of them it's painful to do music and they just leave me with the editor, which is fine because editors are great. And I'm just as happy to work with an editor who then can guide me closer to the director. Yeah. Doc editor spend... might be, I mean, that, that's oh, your best yeah. friend there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they're really fantastic and they, they can handle, you know, they're used to, trying different music and stuff and sometimes directors it's just too confusing or difficult you know so yeah. there's there's ways of, of working in any kind of situation that are very productive so I, I don't have a judgment about it I just try to figure out what's going to be the best you know most productive use of time yeah 
And I mean, you have you've worked on so many. Uh, I mean, first, just again, congratulations on Gabby Giffords. Like it's it turned out such it's a brilliant doc. I mean, I don't I hate to quote Rotten Tomatoes, but you know, hundred percent. Like every, you know, it's just like critically acclaimed. Oh, I'm and, glad. And it's a uh, you know, it's every, it's a really powerful uh, film, and um, like most of everything you work on. So I, you know, I'm curious maybe to wrap things up. Uh, you know, you've worked on so many different subjects. You've worked on profiling so many different uh, iconic figures, different topics, uh, social issues. Um, is there anything that stands out from your career that you look back on that really just stuck with you, like a, a topic or a person that where you look back and it's like still in your mind, like you wake up or you just uh, find yourself oh. thinking about it, like, oh, that was, that really either changed me, that uh, made me a better person, or that really scarred me or something like, is there something that <laughs> like, could be good or bad? I don't know, but is there, yeah, are there any topics that you've worked on that were like, wow, that was powerful and it's maybe even shifted who I am as a person? <laughs> I think that they all do and working with yeah. different people. Um, I, I, you know, it's funny. I always had this dream of, I just wanted to be on a team and work with the same people a lot. Cause it's, it's very tempting and a, and a wonder it's very attractive sounding because you know each other and it's really easy, but in some ways I'm kind of really glad I, I've worked with so many different people and I, I did a bunch of films with Roy Kennedy, but um, I think, and it was felt good to be like, oh, I'm at home now, you know, but, um, mm -hmm. but, but the change, it's always changing. And what's really cool is I'm working with people that could be my grandchildren, you yeah. know, and it's really wonderful that um, there's times when a seasoned person who's very experienced can really help a young, brilliant person who's trying to, you know, it makes it just easier for them. And so I love that situation. Um, and there are also fresh ideas and it keeps you kind of in the game, you know? So I, I do love having all these different people I've worked with because everyone I work with, almost every single one, we become very close, intimate, because yeah. the kind of things we have to talk about and deal with are very deep, you know? And so- um, And you're all, all being them. very vulnerable too. I mean, you're dealing yeah. with like real, real world things that you have to be vulnerable about as well, yeah. Oh yeah, and you also have to be vulnerable you know, but also I find that, you know, respectful, if you're respectful towards the people you work with and you value them and you value their, their input and stuff, and nothing is a stupid idea, not from a person who's gone out and raised the money and shot the film. And there's no stupid ideas. You know, there's just right. ideas that you can try that you never know what's going to, you know, you just exactly. got to try it. Yeah. It's so I'm really, subjective. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's totally subjective. And you know, and, and as I know, there's an infinite number of ways to score any one particular scene. 100%, and yeah. It's, it's like you got to pick something and go with it, you know, and that's partly that improvisational, uh, the first idea, you know, sometimes it's like, it's very strong, you know, and you, can, yeah. and you just have to figure out what it is, you know, you feel it, but you don't know what it is. You have to I, like define it more, you know. Um, so trusting your instincts and being able to, change things quickly and adapt and be very flexible no no getting upset because you know i've scored something it's like perfect and i go yeah. oh my god i'm such a genius look at that it's just <laughs> everything's perfect and then um you know they come back and go oh we had to cut 32 frames here not just here we did it 10 frames there and 15 <laughs> there and okay you know and what yeah. i know is i can make it perfect again that's all i can make it perfect again it was perfect. It doesn't matter anymore. Now it will be perfect a different way. You know, yeah. it's like, <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Oh, <laughs> Miriam, I want to thank you so much for, for sitting and chatting this evening. And, and, uh, it's such a, Oh yeah, it's fun. It's, it's always a, always just a pleasure to chat with you and, and all your insight. And I mean, your, your career has just been, it's just amazing. And I love your work and, you know, so oh, thank yeah. you. Thanks again. That's like, really it's nice. so great. I to love your up. work too. I mean, watching your, your thing evolve, it's been really great. It's, it's been, been it's been a journey. Yeah, it's been a journey. So, yeah. <laughs> so I started, I was thinking about it, I think in 2010. So it's 12, yeah. That long. Did we, yeah. Did you ever interview me in person at Sundance? Never. I've never actually been to Sundance. And I was looking back oh. at when our, our, our last time, the last time actually, I think I saw you was at the 2018 BMI Awards. I think you, Lolita and Laura oh, got the, yeah. the yeah, the, the Champions nice. Award, which was great. And then, I, th I mean, I think our first interview was right when I was starting. It was like 10 years ago. And it was just a phone oh, yeah, interview. Yeah. yeah so we yeah, no, I've seen you, but yeah. I've seen how you've really developed it. It's great. And, you know, it's wonderful for us to have people that care about what we do. I mean, you know, and are, are interested in how it works. And, you know, so it's great. 
No, it's and oh, I, I, mean, I, I know, and of course, and I, I I do this because you know I'm I'm not a composer, but I got into filmmaking because I love music, and that's I think it's the, the the heart of any any film, and I just love the idea of exploring the human condition, and I don't think anybody does it better than you and the work that you're oh, doing. Thank you. Looking Gosh. at I me, mean, that the work that you do is just you are exploring the human condition in a real way, on a real level. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. And then there's all those times where you know. Like when I worked on Ethel and I was the oldest person working on the film, none of them were alive when Bobby Kennedy was alive. Right. And so I, I'd be watching the footage with them and I'd be like crying and sobbing. And they were looking at me like even Rory, <laughs> like she never even met her dad, you know, she, yeah. she, she died right before she was born. And so it was the strangest experience, you know, but, you know, sometimes you have to harness, you know, I'm not, it's not my film. I need to tell the story she's telling. And right. so I had to really harness my emotions about that because I was very, you know, the Kennedys when I was a kid, it was really super important and we yeah. broke our hearts, you know. So I think that was, I think that was one of the, the first thing we talked about might have been Ethel, I think. Yeah, probably because <laughs> yeah. that was about 10 years ago or something. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, We're doing, a, um, I'm finally getting a live to picture concert of Ethel in wow. new york at the eastman school so that's, oh, that's right i think i saw about that that's amazing congratulations that's yeah that, it's gonna be fun just to really I, hear it uh, played live <laughs> yeah to, i mean to for you to hear your music played live you know oh, where it's just so like great. yeah <laughs> the live yeah, picture really concerts is. are my favorite yeah <laughs> yeah that's i want to do more of that i really hope i get to do more concert stuff but we'll yeah. see, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm not great <laughs> I think you've you've proven that whatever you set your mind to, you can get it done. So <laughs> by <laughs> hook or by crook. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a real shoot from the hip kind of right. <laughs> okay, well just improvise. We'll get it done. <laughs> <laughs>